great to see you this morning and good to have you in the house today. If you're worshiping online, man, we're glad you're joining us today as well. So, hey, get your Bibles out and let's do what we do. We open up God's Word, open it up to the book of Colossians chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. Colossians chapter 1. And uh, while you're turning there, uh, let me just remind you, tomorrow night, 6.30, Jay Warner Wallace right here. I am so excited about having him. I'll be interviewing him for about 45 minutes with just some key questions of things that really were evidence that turned his mind toward Jesus as a hardened skeptic. And, and, and then we're going to just kind of open it up to questions that you have. You may have questions. People you know that you're bringing may have questions. So this is a great place to find answers to spiritual questions. If you've got college students, if you've got high school, middle school students, you need to have them here to hear the evidence laid out. It's going to be a powerful night, uh, a great night. Looking forward to having you in the house tomorrow night, 630. Uh, it's going to be great. All right, so we are in the book of Colossians with our new series, Jesus is Greater. And, uh, and, and so what I want to do is I want to start off and tell you something that happened several years ago. I was in a kind of a trendy restaurant in South Dallas. Now, when I say trendy, it's not like white tablecloth and candles kind of trendy. I'm talking more non-GMO vegan kind of trendy, okay? I have no idea why I was there. Anyway. We're, we're going to the cash register to pay out, and I saw something, I had to take a picture of it. And so this is what I saw at the cash register. Now that is a, yes, that is a small little plastic Jesus right next to a small little plastic Winnie the Pooh. All right, you don't really see that very often. But I, I remember this picture because of the relevance of what we're talking about today. You know, we live in a time, in a culture, where we want a small little plastic Jesus. That's what we want. We really want a malleable Jesus. We don't want Jesus that we can shape in our, uh, what we want, what we like, that we can take Jesus and say, well, my Jesus is this, or I think Jesus is like that, and we can kind of customize Jesus into how we want him to be. We want a Jesus that comforts us, not convicts us. We want a Jesus that will serve us, not, not confront us. We want, we want a Jesus that is love. We don't necessarily want a Jesus that is Lord, right? And, and this desire to take Jesus and then just kind of customize him into something that, uh, that appeals to us is not anything new. In fact, this goes all the way back to the Colossian church. You see, I told you last week that the church at Colossae was started by a man named Epaphras, who was from there. He heard the gospel, went back, he told his family and friends, and they started the, the church there in Colossae. But what I didn't tell you last week is that the church was in trouble, in, in big trouble. You see, there were teachers coming into this church that were teaching things that were simply not true. And it was so critical that Epaphras left Colossae, got on a boat, traveled all the way to Rome, which was no simple thing to do at the time, and found the Apostle Paul in prison and told him what was being taught so that Paul could, in some way, through a letter, set the record straight. So the book of Colossians is really addressing this false teaching that was being taught in this church plant in Colossae. Now, the, the false teaching that was being taught there by, according to New Testament scholars, is often called the Colossian heresy, the Colossian heresy. 
And you say, well, what exactly is the Colossian heresy? Well, there's a lot of pieces to it, but let me tell you in a nutshell, the Colossian heresy was a diminishing of Jesus. It was making Jesus smaller. It was a distortion of the identity of Jesus. For example, leaning or borrowing from Greek thought, Greek philosophy, they said that, that the material things in the world were evil, but the spiritual things were good. And if that's true, then they said Jesus could not be God in the flesh because material is bad, and so they denied the humanity of Jesus. They also taught that God is so far above us and so far removed from us that we cannot have direct contact with God. So God has created these what he calls emanations or different levels of spiritual beings between us and God. And that really Jesus wasn't God. Jesus was one of these lower level emanations that have a reflection of God, but was certainly not God at all. And so they denied the divinity of Jesus. And if that wasn't bad enough, they also taught that salvation really comes from a person's uh, uh, higher knowledge, a person's ethereal experiences. The salvation really uh, comes to us when we, when we kind of rise above what normal people think and, and have a greater sense of spiritual awareness that that's, that's really where we're saved. And so by teaching that, they were denying the saving work of Jesus. So really, all in all, they were denying the humanity of Christ, the deity of Christ, and the saving work of Christ. They were diminishing Jesus. They were distorting the identity of Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul, after his welcome, after his encouragement, after his words of affirmation that we looked at last week, he comes right on and he deals with this heresy. Now that you know the background, you're going to understand why he's saying what he's saying in a more powerful way. If you look at chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, or at least 15 through 20, you're going to see probably in your Bible, it's indented in your Bible. You see that? It's indented there because the structure is a poetic structure. Many people believe this was an ancient hymn that was often sung in the early church or repeated in the early church. But this is what most scholars agree to be one of the greatest Christological passages in the whole Bible that is, that this passage is the most intricate, it is the most specific, it is the most glorious in how it elevates Jesus to his true glory. And it is a profound passage. Really, the big idea of this passage is that Jesus is preeminent, that Jesus is supreme, that Jesus is greater, that Jesus is first in everything. That's what it means. In fact, if you look at verse 18, just to kind of, uh, again, just kind of an introduction, look down at the very end of verse 18. It says, so that he might come to have first place in everything. That's where Paul is driving. That's where he's going. Everything he's going to say is pointing toward that. Jesus is first place in everything. Let me tell you, this passage is as meaning to me personally because I can remember as a college student, Wrestling with the claims of Christ, wrestling with is the Bible true, wrestling is, is Christianity real, wrestling with these questions. And I heard a man teach from Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 23, and it wrecked me. I, I still have vivid memories of that message and how it profoundly changed my heart. 
And I believe that if you get a hold of this passage, or maybe I put it this way, if this passage gets a hold of you, it will wreck you. It will change you. So let's pray. Father, I pray in these few minutes here that we have opening up your word, Lord, I pray you would reveal Jesus to us, that the blinders would fall off, that the veils that hinder our vision of Christ would be removed, that we would see him in all of his glory. And God, I pray that you would speak directly to each one of us, that Jesus would be first in everything. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So Paul is going to identify here four reasons why Jesus must be first. Four reasons, if you're taking notes, four reasons why Jesus must be first, uh, beginning at verse 15. And here's the first reason, because Jesus is God. Because Jesus is God. Look at verse 15. Uh, this is the word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now stop right there for just a minute. The Apostle Paul says that the first thing you need to know is that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible to us, right? You can't see God with your naked eye. You can't see him. And yet, he is real. This is why Jesus said in John 4, 24, that God is spirit. God is invisible, and yet the invisible God is made visible to us in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, he says he is the image of the invisible God. The word image there is the word icon. He's the word icon. Many times uh, other religions will use icons or, or idols to represent their gods. Sometimes you go to a restaurant, right? You'll see a little icon there, a little religious icon that they've set up to remind them. And they, they believe that that icon kind of gives them access to their God. Or a little offering to that icon gives them access to their God. Christians don't have an icon like that because the icon is Jesus, right? That Jesus is God in the flesh. That Jesus is the one that gives us access to the Father. That's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's why he said in John 10, 30, that I and the Father are one. Jesus said that I am the way, that you're like, no one gets to the Father except through me, that Jesus is God made flesh to us. And so Jesus, he starts right off the bat that Jesus is God. In the, he's not some small little low-level emanation. He is God in the flesh. And then he backs it up with this next statement. He is the firstborn over all creation. Now, a lot of my uh, Jehovah's Witness friends say, see, Craig, wait, wait, wait. It says he's firstborn. That means he was born. He can't be God because he was born, right? Duh, that's what it says. Yeah, but if you back up and you understand Jewish culture, then you understand that the term firstborn doesn't mean you're born first. The, the term firstborn is a title. It is a title. It's a title of authority. It is a title of rank is a title of position, and it is a title of prominence. It means that this person is designated to have the blessing of the Father and all inheritance of the Father and all the authority of the Father. That's what the firstborn means. In fact, you see this all the way through the Bible. There are multiple examples where someone was born first, but they weren't the firstborn. And I'm not trying to confuse you. I'm trying to designate between the two. For example, uh, Abraham uh, Ishmael was born first, but he wasn't the firstborn. That was Isaac. Isaac was the one of promise. Isaac was the one that had the inheritance. Isaac was the one that had the blessing. 
Same is true of Esau and, uh, and, and Jacob. They were the sons of Isaac, but Esau was born first, but he wasn't the firstborn. That was Jacob. He was the one that had the blessing and the authority and the power and the title. Same thing is true of, of Isaac's uh, children that Reuben was born first, but Joseph was the firstborn, the one of blessing and honor. You see this all the way through the Bible. And so when it says that he is the image of the invisible God, he's God made flesh. He's the God intangible, made tangible. He's the God invisible, made visible. He's a God in material, made material. He is the, he's the image of the invisible God, the icon by which we know who God is and have access to the Father. And he is the firstborn over all creation. He has a title that is greater than anyone. That's what Paul is saying. He has a title of supremacy. Now listen, this is really, really important. Because there are even people today that tried to diminish Jesus, to make Jesus like, oh, he's like every other religious leader, he's like every other religious uh, uh, sage, if you will. No, 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 he's not. He is, he is head and shoulders above the rest. He is not like anyone else you have ever seen. He is God made flesh. And what you do with Jesus depends on the direction and trajectory of your life. I just picture that you are out in a field, all right? I kind of blindfold you, drive you out in the country, drop you off in a field. That sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? All right, why would a preacher do that to you? I don't know. Anyway, I do that and I take off and you have no idea where you are. You're out in a field. It's black night. You don't know where you are. How will you navigate? Well, if you're a student, you're a Boy Scout, you would look up and you would find the North Star and you could somehow navigate from where North is, right? And you would get your boundaries and you could navigate from there. And what, what Paul is saying is Jesus is the North Star. Jesus is due North. Jesus is, is God, he is, he is supreme, he is preeminent, and nothing ever should diminish his position, rank, and title. This is why Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, right? How can he say that? That's him being who he is, right? The firstborn, God in the flesh. And so he starts off, uh, all right, you want to know who Jesus is? Let's just get the record straight. He's God in the flesh, He's over all things. He's the highest rank, right? Enough said. No, that's, that's what he says. That's how he starts off. He is, he is God. Second thing, if you're taking notes, write this down. He created everything. Not only is he God, but he created all things. Look at verse 16. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He said he created everything. Just think about it. Jesus was the agency by which everything came into the world. That everything came into the world through the action of Jesus. What the Father conceived, the Son created what the Father designed, the Son declared. And he makes it really clear that everything began through Christ. Everything was created in Christ, both the physical material world and the uh, immaterial spiritual world. All things were created. You know, scientists now uh, agree, it seems to be common knowledge now, that, that everything that we know in the universe came into being at one particular point in time. They call it the Big Bang. Uh, now, more and more and more and more evidence is coming in that this is actually the case. 
The bing bang, the idea that time, energy, space, and matter all began at one point in time. Just think about that. That there was a time when there was no time. (laughs) That there was no space, there was no matter, there was no energy. And then all of it began in just a moment. Now, if the universe or all that's created began, then there had to be something that caused that beginning. And so whatever caused that beginning had to be outside of time, outside of energy, outside of space, outside of matter. And so what is that thing that was outside of time, space, energy, and matter that created all that there is? And what Paul is saying is it's not a what is the thing, it is who is the person, and the person is Jesus. In fact, we see this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, that's time. God created, that's energy. The heavens, that's space. And and the earth, that's matter. God created all of it in a moment in time. And he did it through the agency and the work of Jesus Christ. He created all things that we see, all the glory of nature, all the beauty that surrounds us was created by Jesus Christ. And then he said he created all the stuff you can't see. In fact, look at it, what he says here. He, he mentions, he mentions uh, that he created uh, thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities. Those are probably hierarchy of angelic beings, spiritual beings, many of which we don't even know what he's talking about. But he's created all the material world and he created all the immaterial world. He created all the physical world and all the metaphysical world. And why did he do this? Look at what it says. He created these things by him and they were made for him. Now, I don't want you to run past this. This is the answer to the two greatest existential questions that people ask. When I say existential, I'm meaning the things that, the questions we ask about our own existence, our own reality. The questions that people ask, and they've been in these questions in the soul of man since the very beginning. The questions that people ask in all different cultures, in all different times, and that is simply this. uh, Why am I here, and who am I? Who am I? What is my identity and why am I here? What is my purpose? Every single human being asks that question. Now listen, animals don't sit around asking those questions. All right, my labradoodle's not sitting around going, why am I here and what is my purpose in life? He just eats his bowl, right? And chases squirrels, that's all he knows. But human beings created by God are, are asking these two questions and he answers them right here. You wanna, you wanna know what the answer is? The answer is, who are you? You are created by Jesus. You were created on purpose, that you're no accident, that God created you. And secondly, now did he create you and you have intrinsic worth and value because of that. That's, by the way, why Christians are pro-life. That's why Christians uphold life and protect life because we believe every life is valuable to God, created by God, created in the image of God. But secondly, why are you here? To bring him glory. You were created by him and you were created for him. You were created to know God in a deep and personal and intimate way. This is why God made you, and you will never find satisfaction in life until you find it in Jesus. You will never find rest in life until your heart and soul rest in Jesus. And so here's Paul just breaking it down for us. Look at the next phrase. He is before all things. That is, he predates time, energy, space, and matter. He is that which existed before anything existed at all. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. I love that. By him all things hold together. This last week, I was in uh, New York City just briefly. It was like a 36-hour trip. Went in, did a little business, left 
I met with Charles and Jordan, our church planter and his wife, and got to see where they live and got to walk. It was pouring down rain, got to walk through Harlem and kind of brainstorm what God was doing there and kind of working with him on some of the early pieces of the vision that God's giving him for that church plant. It was a great time. But if you go to Fifth Avenue, right there next to Rockefeller Center, you will see this, this statue of Atlas. Many of you have probably seen it. It's, it's very historic. And Atlas is standing there. He's, he's this muscular uh, figure, and he's holding the world on his shoulders, right? It's like all he can do to hold and bear the world on his shoulders. Interesting thing is if you go across the street, into St. Patrick's Cathedral, there's a statue of Jesus, and he is holding the world, but he's holding it in the palm of his hand like this. Now listen, that's the contrast. We, we, we're trying to hold things together, right? You may feel like you've got the world on your shoulders right now. I'm just trying to hold our business together and try to make it the next quarter. I'm trying to hold my marriage together. I'm trying to hold myself together. I'm trying to hold my family together. And you feel the weight of it that it all could just spin out of control in any moment. But here is Jesus. And listen, my friends, it is Jesus that holds all things together. And when you are settled on Jesus, he will hold your world together. He will hold your marriage together. He will hold your family together. He will hold you together, even in the hardest and most difficult of times. He said, he is before all things. And in Jesus, he holds all things together. You see the high view of Jesus that Paul gives here? He is God in the flesh. He created and sustains all things. Here's another thing. Check it out. Verse 18. He is head of the church. I love this. Look at verse 18. He said, he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. You know, the church is not perfect. Would you agree with that? Somebody say amen to that. Church is not perfect. Yeah. I mean, we're all a mess, right? We're all a hot mess. That's what we are. And uh, in fact, I've heard people say, if you find a perfect church, please don't join it. You're going to mess it up, right? <laughs> we, we are all a hot mess. Welcome to First Collierville. Uh, but yet Jesus loves the church. That Jesus created the church. He is building his church. He said, upon this rock of the gospel, I will build my church. And it is his church. I think he's talking about the big C church, right? It is the, the church universal, the church of all times, the church that will ultimately be in heaven together. I, I believe he's talking about that. I think he's also talking about this church. That, listen, Jesus is head of this church. It's his. It belongs to him. You know, I get a chance to talk to pastors a lot, and it's, it's my joy. I get to spend time with pastors and encourage them and, and help them think about uh, leadership in their area. And, and there, I have one pet peeve. I, I'm really not a pet peeve kind of guy. There's not a lot that gets on my nerves. Most of the time, things just fly over my head anyway, so I, I, I'm not easily offended. But I do have this one little thing that's like nails on the chalkboard. You know what I'm talking about? Ugh, a cringy kind of thing. And that's when a pastor will say, yeah, my church, blah, 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 blah. And we're oh, you know, I just have to go, listen, buddy, it's, it's not your church. <laughs> it belongs to Jesus, right? It's not your church. This is not my church. But it's not your church either. This is a church that belongs to Christ, that Jesus paid for it 
that Jesus began it, that Jesus will purify his church. Jesus loves his church. Jesus meets among us in his church. And one day Jesus is coming back for his church. And that is our great hope. But it is his church. And what Paul is telling to that little church plant for people that might strut into the church in Colossus and go, well, you know, this is my church. And I've got this new teaching, this new revelation. He's like, listen, pal, it is not your church. Jesus is the head of the church. He is God in the flesh. He created all things. He sustains all things. And he's the head of your church. He's the head of his church. It belongs to him. And then he says this, finally, jot this down. Jesus reconciles us to God. Jesus reconciles us to God. Look at verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. By the way, that's just a great place to stop. I'm not going to pause here very long. But the word pleruma, to all fullness, complete fullness. Uh, for those that thought he was some little emanation of God, no, no, he is a fullness of God, dwells in Christ. He is God in flesh. Look at it. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions. But now we have, he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not sifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. You hear the warning? He's like, hey, don't get, don't, don't be drawn away from the gospel. It's come to you. This gospel that I'm preaching has come to you. Don't lose your ground on that. But here's what I want you to see. Look at verse 21. Look how personal Paul gets. Like he's starting macro, right? He's God, and then he created all things, and now he's the head of the church. And by the way, he's the head of the church that you attend, Colossae, and then he zeroes right in on the individual. And look at what he says. He said, you were alienated and hostile toward God because of your evil actions. He really is gets right down to the core and he said, listen, you wanna know what the gospel is? The gospel begins with really bad news and the bad news is that you are not right. That you and I are fallen, wicked, sinful creatures. By the way, that is not a popular notion today, right? People don't really wanna hear that. I hear a lot of people go, ah, oh, well, you know, everybody's basically good, you know, people are, humanity is basically great, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, no, not really, not really. Look at yourself too, long enough in the mirror and you'll see that we are hostile toward God. We're alienated from God. That we're wicked in, to the core. And in our fallen state, in our wayward state, when we deserve judgment, God sent Jesus. And it says, here comes the God-man. Here comes the creator of all things. Here comes the one who sustains all things. Here comes the head of the church. And what does he do? He comes born as a baby. He comes walking along the streets like we have. He comes and dwells among us and tabernacles among us. He comes and reveals the Father. He comes and he crawls up on a cross and he dies in our place. His dead body placed in a tomb and he rises again on the third day. That is who Jesus is. That is the essence of the gospel. 
And he said, it is this gospel that will free you if you hold on to it. It is this gospel that will change you if you hold on to it. He will present you blameless and holy and reconciled before God if you place your faith in Christ. Look at it, verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's death to present you blameless before him. My friends, that is a gospel that will bring change. That's a gospel that changes lives. That means you can change. You can be different. You can be right with God. And it's not by your own effort. It's not by your own achievement. It is by faith in Christ alone. So here's Paul. He's addressing this ancient Colossian heresy. And he says, Jesus first. He's first because he's God. He's first because he created all things. He's first because he's head of the church. He's first because he is a reconciler of all who turn to him in faith. There's no one like him. There's no one comparable to him. There's no one who stands shoulder to shoulder with him. There's no one greater than him that Jesus is first. And you say, well, Craig, well, what does that mean for us? All right, what does that mean for me? Even if I agree with that, so what? I'll tell you, so what? Look at verse 18 again. Look at it. So that he might come to have first place in everything. You see that? When I was a college student, I heard this message. And I told you, it wrecked me. And the reason why it wrecked me is because as I was hearing it, The Spirit of God was pushing his finger in my chest and saying, Craig, I am not first in your life. You're pursuing all these other things. You're pursuing all this other stuff. You have pushed me to the side, but I deserve first place. Let me ask you something. Is Jesus first place in your life? Really? Or is your career first place? And everything gets pushed to the side for your career advancement. Or the things that you have, that's first place. And everything is pushed aside so that you have more. Or your time, or your hobby, or your, your position, or how people perceive you is first place. Or your relationships. Listen, when Jesus is first place, everything else falls into place. And when Jesus is not first place, everything else falls apart. Would you bow your heads with me for just a minute? My friend, the reason why you're here today is because Jesus deserves and will ultimately have first place in your life. The Bible says that one day, the day is coming and it is sooner now than it was yesterday. When every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But now is the season of grace. Now is the season of opportunity when you you bow to him, not because you have to, but because you want to. Not out of obligation but out of surrender. And maybe the Holy Spirit is pressing his finger into your chest and he's saying, you know what? I'm not first place in your life. Who are you kidding? I know it and you know it. 
then today is the day. If you're a Christian, then you need to submit all that you are to Jesus, to confess it before him and to say, Lord Jesus, I want you to be first in my life, first in my time, first in my priority, first in my passion, first in all that I have. I wanna glorify you and know you. Please forgive me. But maybe you've never given your life to Jesus. The reason why he's not first place is you never asked Christ to forgive you and to come into your life and be your Lord. Then I wanna give you a chance to do that right now. Just with your heads bowed, I'm gonna pray a simple prayer of faith, asking Christ to forgive and to restore. And maybe you say, Pastor, that's what I need. I need Jesus to come into my life. I need Christ to forgive me. I need to respond to the gospel that I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And I want him to wash me clean and make me right. And if that's you, do not leave this room without knowing for sure that you're right with God. So I'm gonna pray a simple prayer. And if you say, Pastor, that's me. I need Christ in my life. Then I'll just right now, no one's looking around. Just lift up your hand and say, include me in that prayer. And I'll see your hand and I'll just walk you through it, all right? Just lift up your hand. Pastor, pray for me. Pray for me. I, I, I need Jesus. Lift up your hand. Pray for me. I need Christ in my life. I wanna be right with God, all right? Lift it up, all right? Thank you. Anybody else? Lift up your hand. Pastor, pray for me. I need Christ, all right? Pastor, pray for me. I need Jesus in my life. I want to know for sure that I'm right with him. Pastor, pray for me. Okay. All right, put your hand down. And just pray this simple prayer with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned against you. And I have gone my own way. And I have put other things in your rightful place. But I believe you are God in the flesh. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose again from the dead. And I believe you are the only one who can forgive me. So I'm asking you now, please forgive me. Please wash me clean. Please make me a new person. Today I choose to follow you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me.